there's been a bunch of studies really nailing fructose as a horrible thing to be avoided at all costs. But if you actually read the studies, you find out that all of them were done on high fructose corn syrup, which is a completely different product than fructose. You'll see that they mention we should be able to eat all the fruit we want. Fruit is a good thing for us. I don't find any restriction. I just decided what consequences do I want to go after. And the consequences I want are health and happiness. And when the light bulb went off, there was no shutting it down. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about this episode. While you guys know I don't personally practice an entirely plant-based whole foods diet like Dr. Graham does, I am really, really fascinated by the whole movement. There seem to be a lot of people really doing well on that dietary approach. I do have my concerns about protein and some long-term nutritional issues just from my own experience and based on conversations with people I've had like Rob Wolf, Dr. Ted Naiman, some of the carnivore people, Paul Saladin. So yes, I know there's a lot of dietary debate out there, but I myself, when I am not in my own Facebook group, which is IF Biohackers, you all should join me there. When I'm not there, I'm typically oscillating back and forth, lurking in carnivore Facebook groups and then fruititarian 801010 on the other. I'm open to hearing all opinions, all experiences. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode and are open to the things that we discuss. If you do really enjoy this episode, some other episodes you might also enjoy the episode episode where I interviewed Cyrus and Robbie of Mastering Diabetes, as well as an episode that is not out yet, but I did interview Dr. Alan Goldhammer yesterday of True North Health Center, and that was a really great conversation. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash 801010, so the numbers 801010. There will be a full transcript there, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, please join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting, plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Guys, I am getting a lot better about Instagram for reals. <laughs> so definitely follow me there at Melanie Avalon. I'm still super shy and super self-conscious about it, but I'm really trying and I've done some really great giveaways on it. So follow me. I do a lot of giveaways, trying to share things. Definitely check it out. To get all the latest updates from me, get on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash email list. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Doug Graham. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I am so incredibly excited and thrilled about the conversation that I am about to have. I'm going to start with a little bit of backstory and a little bit of context for my audience so you guys know that I come from the paleo world, but the paradigm that I really exist in is one of eating whole foods. And 
within that world, I'm sort of macronutrient agnostic, or I'm all about people finding the diet that works best for them. And the reason I'm saying all of this is that I know a lot of my audience comes from a lower carb approach, probably a lot of them from like a meat centric approach. I've done a lot of episodes on the carnivore diet, for example. All of that said, I think there's often a fear of carbs. I found that in a lot of my audience. I think there's a fear of plants oftentimes. And actually on this show, one of the most popular episodes I've had to date was with Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes, which is an incredible book. I cannot recommend it enough. And that was really, really a game-changing episode for a lot of my audience. And after that, I knew I wanted to do more on that topic, more in that that rabbit hole. And I myself have always sort of existed in exploring all of these worlds in like the internet world between like the low carb sphere and then the higher carb plant-based approach. I've been really fascinated by something called the 80-10-10 diet for years now. I've been on the forums and the Facebook groups, all the things. So when my dear friend, Glenn Livingston, who wrote Never Binge Again, who I also had on the show, when he offered to introduce me to none other than the author of the 80-10-10 diet, I was over the moon. That's why I'm over the moon right now. And that's why I'm so honored, so excited to say that I am right here with Dr. Douglas Graham, as I mentioned, he is the author of the 80-10-10 Diet, as well as a ton of other books. I already anticipate hopefully bringing him back in the future for some other topics, but today's conversation will likely be 80-10-10 Foundation. Dr. Douglas Graham, he's a lifetime athlete and a raw fooder since 1978. He served as an advisor to so many Olympians, athletes, people in the entertainment industry. He served as a source authority for magazines, for shows. I mean, he's just all over the place. He's actually, I just learned he's on the board of governors for the International Association of Professional Natural Hygienists, which is exciting. We might go in the dental rabbit hole on this episode. But in any case, I am so honored to be here. This man is such a big deal. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're about to have. So Dr. Graham, thank you for being here. Gosh, Melanie, thank you so much. That's a great introduction, and I'm going to do my best to live up to it. Thank you. Oh, I'm sure you will. We were talking before the call for the audience about, you know, what were we going to talk about <laughs> exactly? And it sounds like Dr. Graham and I are very similar and loving to just talk and go on all the rabbit holes and all the tangents. So I'm really excited. That said, my audience is, like I just said before, I think a lot of them are not going to be as familiar as maybe a lot of the audiences that you have talked to because you've done over 4,000 presentations, which is kind of insane. But this audience might be a, a little bit fresh to some of the concepts. So to start things off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your own personal story and what brought you to the raw food lifestyle? What brought you to writing the 801010 diet and what brought you to where you are today? Sure. My memory is pretty good. My father had what I thought was a photographic memory, although he says it wasn't. He says it was photographic, but he didn't always have film in the camera. But my memory is pretty good, and that has helped me a lot because when I was a kid, my mom was heavy. She was 
not even five feet tall and quite heavy to be 180 and five, not five feet tall back then in the 50s was a big deal. So she was always looking for ways to lose weight. And, and when she went on a diet, the whole family went on the same diet, whatever it was. So making changes in diet seemed normal to me. Experimenting with changes in diet seemed normal to me and wasn't threatening in any way because we did it many times as a child. And eventually she landed with Weight Watchers when I was a teenager. And and the thing about Weight Watchers is they they have you eat some salad and they have you eat some vegetables every night. So I remember eating salad and vegetables as part of dinner. Other than that, we ate just like everybody else ate. I ate my weight in meat several times over every year. And I ate my, my weight in dairy several times over every year. And I ate my weight again in ice cream all by itself several times over every year. And and I remember as a, especially as an athlete teenager when I was really growing a lot, that I snacked almost continually. Not quite continually because three times a day I would stop snacking in order to sit down and eat a meal. But other than that, I was always snacking. I got interested in nutrition. I remember the very first time I was in third grade, oddly enough, and I went to go see the school nurse and and she had a sign on her door that said, an apple a day keeps the doctor away with a picture of an apple. And I just remember it from, you know, being eight years old. And I go, oh, really? Like what you eat makes a difference as to how often you go see the doctor. It just seemed rather profound. I have no idea why, but later I was in in the seventh grade and my health teacher was a guy named Jim Asbell. And he said, eat fruits and vegetables. They're really good for you. And then in high school, I had a a health teacher named Joe Rosati. I don't know if anybody else knows Joe Rosati, but he's the man most famous for saying, okay, boys, pair up in threes. He said, eat fruits and vegetables. They're really good for you. You have to have your fruits and you have to eat your vegetables. So, you know, we ate fruits and vegetables and, and I credited those guys. And in college, my health teachers said, you know, you got to eat fruits and vegetables. And it just kept coming up. The same message just kept coming up. Eat your fruits and vegetables. When I went through my chiropractic training, I took every nutrition course that was offered. And again, it didn't matter what diet the teacher proposed. It always included fruits and vegetables. And when it was just a straight study of nutrition, what we learned is that there's roughly 500,000 nutrients known to man. Only about half of them have names at this point, but we know that they exist and don't even know what they do yet. But but we're guessing somewhere's around 500,000. And if you eat meat or anything that comes from an animal, you get approximately 100 nutrients. But if you eat plants you get 500,000. That seemed rather profound, once again, that, wow, I could either have 100 nutrients or 500,000 nutrients. And when people are asking me, where do you get your this or that, answering plants seemed like the smarter answer. It was just more more comprehensive. So, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, I, I played with diet change in high school because, again, my mom was overweight. Hence, my sister started struggling with her weight. And and the next thing I knew, we were trying low-fat alternatives to fattening foods. So my sister gave me 
apple seeds instead of chocolate chips, which we didn't find out until much later could have been deadly. But I lived and and we tried all sorts of things. And, and in college, again, I just started making diet changes more and more. Got interested in health food and visiting the health food store and and learning more about the macro neurotic approach and and finding things out. You know, the more I found out, it just seemed like, oh, well, it would make sense to do this or to include this or maybe not include some things and maybe change chocolate for carob or consider how much salt you're using since since 30 grams is considered a deadly dose and the average American's eating 15 grams, maybe eating less than that might be good because the average set of kidneys are only good for about 10 grams at the absolute most if you stop producing aldosterone completely. But then you run into all kinds of hormonal issues from lack of aldosterone. Things are complicated in the world of nutrition. It's not just isolate this and take more of that. It's it's all nutrients interact with all other nutrients. You might have to go a few a few levels down the connections, but the average nutrient interacts with eight others and then 64 and, and then whatever that is, 512 is next, I think. But you very quickly get up into the hundreds of thousands. So I just kept making little dietary changes and saw very little results. You know, it seemed like a big deal to go vegetarian and I did it by accident. I ran out of money in college and, and I was feeding myself and, you know, it was cheaper to buy pasta than it was to buy meat. And, and then I met this girl who said, I'm a vegetarian. And I said, well, so am I. And, and I became one, but I had already been doing it for a while. I just hadn't done it intentionally or named it. It, it just worked out that way. And, and, you know, I thought I'd arrived. I really felt like I'd arrived and I was a vegetarian for, for almost seven years before the idea of veganism started to make sense to me. I finally said, well, you know, I, I really need to find out what this is. I need to become a vegan as an experiment. I'll do it for a year. And after a week, there was just like, wow, this is profoundly different. Almost all my allergies just... I had a lifetime of allergies and, and they just went away. I didn't know what happened even. And being an interesting trained doctor, I said, well, you know, why is this happening? I started looking into the connections between food and allergies, food and behavior, food and athleticism, food and all just all sorts of stuff. And all the books were already written. It was amazing. And, and, and I was vegan for just a few months. And I met this guy who started talking to me about raw food and, and I knew he was crazy because nobody would intentionally just eat raw food when cooked food tastes so good. And, but then I, you know, he, he just planted a seed. So I let the seed percolate a little bit and it just stewed around in my brain and I'm going like, why would anybody eat, cook, you know, just a raw food diet? And I looked into it a little bit more and and when the light bulb went off, there was no shutting it down. I realized like every creature on the planet eats raw food. Every variety of humans that has ever existed, and there's been eight or ten different varieties of homo. We just happen to be homo sapien, but there's been a bunch of others. And every single one of them ate a raw food diet throughout the 
entire history of millions of years that, that we've walked the planet. And, and yeah, in the last 1% of the time that we've been here, some of us have experimented with cooked food a little bit here and there. But the entire, like, everything is cooked concept didn't really take over until germs were discovered 150 years ago and didn't become a big deal until about 130 years ago with Pasteur and the whole deal. And, and then everybody got scared of germs. Could you imagine something that you can't see with the naked eye getting people so scared that they changed their entire way of living? Oh, it's happening again. That's a different story. So off I was going, well, if everybody else eats raw food and all my teachers in school said, eat fruits and vegetables, I wonder what would happen if I just ate fruits and vegetables to the exclusion of everything else. And I found out that it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. There was some learning to do. And instantaneously from the very first meal felt better. The first thing that happened was what I call brain fog. My memory just got so sharp. I started remembering things and names and and school things that had happened, you know, gosh, in grammar school and and events and and puzzle pieces falling into place. It, the clarity of mind was just astonishing. But then I went for a run and I never run because I can't run. I always get out of breath within the first mile and I have to stop. But this friend invited me to go for a run and I didn't want to say no. And he and I just went out and ran six miles like it was the easiest thing ever. And I go, what the heck is going on? I could breathe. I could think. And what I started to realize was that something that I always called accident proneness, discoordination, just went away in every aspect of my life. It wasn't just that I no longer got tongue twisted or that I no longer, as you would say, tripped over your words or tripped and fell or overestimated my physical abilities or started running on time for the first time in my life or just all these things just clicked. It was, it was crazy. And then I noticed the big thing. I didn't want a snack anymore. I just didn't want to. I'd finish a meal and I was so satiated that I would not want to eat again for three, four, five, six, seven hours. And then when I felt like I wanted to eat, I'd eat a little something or I'd have a big something, but I'd eat and I'd be satiated again. I didn't try to stop snacking. It just happened. And I knew I was on to something, but I didn't know what, and I couldn't figure out how to remain athletic and raw. I tried to follow the guidelines of the various people out there. And, and I actually at one point went to all the leaders in the then raw movement. Granted, this was 40 years ago. I went to all the leaders in the raw movement, all five of them. And I asked them, if you want to be a top athlete, because I was still a competitive athlete at the time, what diet would you recommend? And all five of them said the same thing. They all said the raw diet. And I go, okay, well, what kind of raw diet would you recommend? You know, and they all said, well, we have no idea what kind of raw diet that would be. We've never used a raw diet to support health. We've always used it to help sick people get well. We've never used it for 
fitness. You know, we always just used it to help the sickest of the sick stop being so sick. They're the only ones motivated enough to eat an all raw diet like it was a penalty or something. And, and I wasn't finding it a penalty, but I had to find my own way. Lo and behold, I, I just started looking at the nutrition that was out there and the successful people in nutrition, the long-term people in nutrition were all saying the same thing. All of the people who were considered long-lived peoples of the world were all doing the same thing. And they were doing the same thing that was being recommended by the long-term nutritional experts. And then I started looking at the top performers in the world and they were all doing the same thing too. So if we looked at the Kenyan runners, for example, and they're, they're all eating in the same way that was being recommended in the same way that the longevity people were eating. And they were eating diets that were predominated, heavily predominated by carbohydrates. They were eating diets where just like everybody else in the world, about 10% of the calories came from protein between nine and 11 for most people in the entire world. As an after effect, their dietary fat was reduced. Well, compared to the people who mainstream in the world are eating 45 to 50% of their calories from fat as an average of total calories for the day, these long-lived people, these high-level performers, they were all eating teens in fat or even occasionally single digits. So I coined 80-10-10 to represent that formula of at least 80% of your calories from carbs. And as I lived it, an, an experiment on myself, I found that for the first time I was fully satiated on a raw food diet. If I had enough fruit as my source of carbohydrate, then I ate salad because I like to eat salad. And I've got a lot of culinary background. I love to make food, always have. So I developed the Simply Delicious trademark cuisine and and started teaching that to people and the next thing you know it's catching on and and I was thrilled to have Robbie and Cyrus as students way back when gosh almost 20 years ago for both of them and I'm even more thrilled that they're doing fantastic now teaching the programs that I taught them so in the last 20 years I haven't looked back because 801010 is working so well. And what I did instead was learn the science to explain why it works so well, which I look forward to doing with you tonight. Oh my goodness, listeners, you can probably see why I'm so excited now. I feel like we would have really gotten along really well as children. One of my first memories surrounding health and everything was kind of similar to your your Apple story, but it was, I remember in kindergarten, I had a headache or something and my mom was like, oh, take an Advil or like an aspirin or something like that. And it didn't make sense to me like why one pill could fix anything. How does the aspirin know to go to your head? Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Cause it seemed like no matter what it was like a, you know, a sore knee or a headache, it, the aspirin would fix it. And I was like, 
this doesn't make sense. Like, what? <laughs> and now I know, you know, it's because there's like systemic inflammation that it's addressing, you know, there's something greater, like a foundational thing that it's addressing. I feel like we have similar minds, you and I, and then I as well, have always done a lot of dietary experimentation, but I fell into the, the low carb world originally, then adopted intermittent fasting, which was a game changer for me. Kind of like you said you would do, was it vegetarian you were going to try for a year? And then you never looked back. I said I was going to try fasting for like a week. I said vegan, but yeah. Vegan. Okay. Yeah. Vegan. I knew it was one of those. So then I actually came out of the low carb world and went lower fat and brought in fruit and felt like my life was like lighting up. And I, I was like, there is something here. And my, my listeners know my love for fruit. All of that said, so many things I have questions about. So a foundational question I have is I am always haunted by this question of what is the optimal diet for the human being. And what I find so confusing is that people do seem to thrive on different diets. Like we see people thriving in, you know, the raw diet and even like fruititarianism, like the most intense uh, versions of that. But then on the flip side, we see people at least seemingly thriving on things like carnivore, which seems to be, you know, the polar opposite. When I look at the human body, it seems to say to me, omnivore. I get the message from it that we can eat both plants and animals. And then if I look at like the longest lived societies, you know, yes, a lot of them are heavily plant-based, but the majority of them have at least some animal products with the exception of Loma Linda. And then we have societies like Hong Kong where, you know, they have really high meat intakes, but they have longevity. All of this to say, I'm really haunted by the concept of like, what is the optimal diet for the human being? So, so do you think that the human body that we're not made to eat meat and people who seem to be thriving on a diet like carnivore, for example, like what do you think is happening there? It's a great question. And again, I was raised on meat. If it wasn't meat, I didn't, I didn't eat breakfast, lunch or dinner. I mean, that was my, that was my thing. To move away from meat was a very big deal for me, although admittedly I never had to kill an animal in order for me to eat meat. And if it came down to that, I don't know even as a child if I would have killed an animal. I'm kind of a softy at heart, but I certainly, if it came down to a lifeboat situation and it was you or me, I'm going to live. <laughs> Because I have a strong desire to live, as do we all, I believe. So, you know, you can look at the science and the science says fruits and vegetables provide everything we need, 500,000 nutrients. Plants are easy to access. They're everywhere. You would never be far from leaves or fruit if you were living something close to nature. We can look at the idea of, gosh, even a carnivore diet tends to include some plants at some point, somewhere down the line. The meat is not essential to the vegan approach or the raw vegan approach. So we can do without one, without you know, necessarily doing without the other. There are specific people who can point us in directions. 
So there was a guy in 1952, won a Nobel Prize for his landmark work on vitamin C. His name was Linus Pauling. And he said that we need to be consuming somewhere between 20 and 50 times as much vitamin C as we currently do. World, wake up, please. And 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 it was worth a Nobel Prize and all, and all the money and prestige that goes with it. Because he said, if you're getting that much vitamin C in your day, you're essentially bulletproof to disease. This was a big deal. And as 68 years ago, it's certainly not news. It's almost news because it's been forgotten because he was laughed at by some people who said, well, you know, yeah, but the only way you could get that vitamin C would be, you know, if you were just supplementing like crazy, giant vitamin C tablets or whatever. Oddly, though, when I do the math on my diet, I eat exactly the amount of vitamin C that Linus Pauling recommended. And I'm not trying to get it. I just eat fruits and vegetables, whatever's in season at the time. It's pretty easy, but it doesn't matter what time of year when I do the math, I'm getting all that all that vitamin C. And, and my health history is pretty darn good. So... No. Are we all designed to eat the same diet? No, by all means not. I mean, one in a hundred people taste coriander or what you might call cilantro. And one in a hundred people have a specific genetic difference from you and I who love cilantro. And to them, it tastes like soap. So they're not made to eat cilantro. I can't say, well, we're all made to eat certain foods. If we look in the animal kingdom, we might see that that although all of the sloths in the entire world eat plants and they eat a hundred different kinds of plants, any given sloth probably only eats about 25 or 30 plants. And what this means is that there's more room for sloths in the jungle because they can all eat different stuff and be happy with their choices. We can look at our anatomy and physiology and the science known as comparative anatomy. And that science says that animals that are anatomically and physiologically similar eat similar foods. And this is how a zoologist or a zookeeper knows what to feed a new animal that comes into his zoo or her zoo based on their anatomy and physiology. So if it's got four legs and hoofs and a bunch of flat molars and a certain shaped tongue, you know, a rasping kind of a tongue, you kind of get the feeling this is a plant eater. And if he's got fangs and and his eyes are are really forward facing and and he's fast as all heck and claws and and he's got a bunch of teats. The females have a bunch of teats because they have litters of babies rather than just one at a time. To be capable of multiple babies, the eggs are or work a little different inside the embryo. They have what's called discoid rather than rather than R ovoid. Anyway, we go through this whole thing and you go, ah, well, that's probably a meat eater. And we come to a, a point where we bump into what's known as species-specific eating. So according to the zoologists and the comparative anatomists, these are 
pretty well-respected scientists. Every species eats a diet that is unique to the species, but it will be similar to the diets of other creatures that are similar to themselves. So deer and antelope and moose and elk and caribou and whatnot, they're all going to eat maybe similarly. They're all grazers, but they're not going to eat necessarily the identical food because they are each a unique species. Human beings are a unique species, and we are similar to all of the other anthropoid primates. The anthropoid primates all invariably eat a diet of fruits and vegetables. They all invariably eat a diet predominated by fruit, with the exception of the gorilla, because the gorilla has a hard time going out on skinny branches. So he can't really access as much fruit. So he eats more vegetables and suffers indigestion as a result almost continually. But they're here. They're living in a fringe of our world. But if we arrange these cousins of ours, the the gorilla and the orangutan and the chimpanzee and the bonobo and all, all the anthropoid primates, we can arrange them in order according to how much fruit they eat. And the top of the list is the bonobo. We can arrange them in order of intelligence, and the top of the list is the bonobo. We can arrange them in order of genetic similarities to ourselves, and the top of the list is the bonobo. In all three cases, at least in theory, we'd be at the top of the list for intelligence, for genetic similarities with ourselves, and at least in theory, for the amount of fruit that we consume. We should be at the top of that list. If the anatomists and the zoologists and the comparative anatomists, if they have any idea what they're talking about, then we should be at the top of those those three areas. And our fruit consumption should be higher than any others. So an experiment was done. It was done out in in what's called the West Country of England. And they took a bunch of people and they put them on what they called at the time the gorilla diet. And they put them on display in a zoo-like environment for a month eating the gorilla diet. Whatever was typically fed to gorillas in a zoo was fed to these human beings and they volunteered to do it. And they have found some interesting things. One, any of them that had heart disease, the heart disease disappeared within the month. Any of them with diabetes no longer had diabetes by the end of the month. Any of them with weight to lose had substantially lost weight, but those who didn't have weight to lose had held their weight on a diet of fruits and vegetables. Oddly enough, it just seemed to work. We can look around in many, many areas. And I can't say that you are not designed to eat meat because I'm not a scientist. I'm a doctor. I can only interpret the information that's out there. But there are some interesting people known as sports physiologists. And they have in the world of science, they have a a unique situation going because doctors could write a book on diet. Any doctor can write a book on diet and come up with any diet and promote it. Somebody once tried to convince us that if your blood is different than my blood, you should eat a different diet. And I mean, cows all, they have more different 
blood types than humans do, but all cows eat grass. I mean, this is known as a species-specific diet for cows, grass. End of story. Well, if all creatures have species-specific diets, why shouldn't we? We're creatures. So I looked to see what the sports physiologists say, because as I said, they have a unique situation in that they can't just willy-nilly say whatever they want. When they make a proclamation about performance, other athletes are going to try to do what they did. Other scientists are going to try to duplicate their studies. And if they can't, then the first person comes a little bit under question. So for instance, with the blood type diet, 50 other people have tried to duplicate that research and none of them have been able to do so. It makes the initial research come into great question because nobody can duplicate it. In the world of sports physiology, the sports physiologists tell us two things. Both of them use the phrase uptake, transport, and delivery. And the concerns for this physiologist is the uptake, transport, and delivery of oxygen and carbohydrate, specifically the carbohydrate known as glucose, which serves as the primary fuel for every cell of the human body. The physiologists tell us that as dietary fat goes down, not how fat you are or how much body fat you carry, but how much fat is in your day-to-day diet as a percentage of your total calories. As dietary fat goes down, the uptake, transport, and delivery efficiency of oxygen and glucose goes up. This was first discovered and mentioned in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1959. Again, no more news there. It should be well established by now, almost 60 years later. And in 1959, they said as, as dietary fat goes up, our ability to deliver glucose from the bloodstream to the cells of the body goes down. And what they said drew the obvious conclusion since diabetes is a condition where we can't get glucose out of the bloodstream. The solution is to lower the dietary fat and then diabetes goes away, no longer exists, which is why there was no diabetes long ago because the high fat diet experiment wasn't available to people. We weren't create, there was no oils to buy. And there was, I mean, okay, 4,000 years ago, you could get oil in the Middle East, but it was used to light lanterns, not as food. Actually, when they'd squeeze olives and, and get the oil in order to light the lanterns, because people lived in caves and you needed lanterns, what was left All that squeezing that was left, that was fed to the sheep. So we weren't eating high-fat foods. We had no access to them. Sure, every every species has a little bit of fat here and there. I'm not anti-fat or fat-phobic in any way, but I'm very pro-fruit because every cell of the body is fueled by glucose primarily. 90% of them can also use fructose which we find in fruit. There's been a bunch of studies really 
nailing fructose as a horrible thing to be avoided at all costs. But if you actually read the studies, you find out that all of them were done on high fructose corn syrup, which is a completely different product than fructose. And that if you read far enough into the studies, you'll see that they mention verbatim that fruit is not a consideration on this study that high fructose corn syrup is a different thing than fructose itself and that we should be able to eat all the fruit we want. Fruit is a good thing for us. So I know there's fruit phobic people. I'm going to put a baby in a crib with a peach and a rabbit and the baby that eats the rabbit and plays with the peach simply isn't going to exist. Babies are going to eat the peach and they're going to play with the rabbit. If I leave you with some animals and some fruit and I come back a week later, the likelihood that you're going to have killed the animals and ignored the fruit is really slim because it's dangerous. It's just dangerous to try to kill an animal. They want to live as much as I want to live, as much as you want to live. So I can sneak up on a raspberry just fine. I can sneak up on an apple or a fig, but... I think I would get infections that would kill me if I tried to kill a squirrel, let alone take a bite out of a cow. I don't see it happening. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that 
is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, 
again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. I have so many, so many thoughts. Okay, really quickly to the the evolutionary side of things, because I definitely would love to focus, you know, on the present of it right now. Like we don't have to spend the whole conversation about the evolution. But one of the things that haunts me about like things that you said, especially like eating fruit and brain size and things like that is, you know, I've seen studies about how I think it isn't the evolution of us. You can correct me if if I'm wrong, but like, I don't know if it was us or if it was like another parallel species, but the transition from becoming a, was it a tree dwelling to like a ground dwelling and the ability to eat fruit was most likely what led to increased brain size. At the same time, I often hear like in the carnivore world that they say when we as a human species started eating meat was when our brain size started increasing. And that was what correlated to intelligence. I'm just really haunted by all of this. But in any case, coming to today, so something huge that you touched on that I love and really want to talk about is the metabolism and fuel choices. And oh, and I will say for listeners, if you haven't read the 801010 diet, there is so much science. Like we're, there's no way we can even remotely scratch the surface of what we could talk about. So listeners definitely get that book if you haven't read it because there is so much in there. Definitely get it. But so back to this conversation. So it seems to me that like you mentioned, like we can, you know, we fuel like glucose is the preferred source of fuel for the body. It's the only fuel that every single cell in our body can use. No matter what you eat, your body will convert it to glucose. So, and even like people on ketogenic diets, like, yes, the majority of our body can adapt to ketones, but even like red blood cells and uh, part of the brain is still at some point going to need glucose. It seems like people can thrive on two sides of the spectrum, either, or I'll say seemingly thrive, like it appears like they're thriving. Really, really low carb. So like actually low carb or really, really low fat and actually low fat. And I think so many people exist in this world where they think they're either low carb or they think they're low fat, but they're not. And I think this is such a problem because it's like, because it's kind of what you just talked about, like fat impeding with glucose disposal and use in the body. And people often, I think, think that they're low fat, like they'll be eating like 30% fat or something. But if that fat is present, and it's just my ideas, I'm just talking right now. But if that fat is present, if there's enough to impede the glucose use on top of that, you think you're being low fat. So you're having all these carbs. If there's just enough fat to mess with that whole system, then I feel like it's really easy to get this, you know, buildup and like nothing will work. So when it comes to low fat, like how low fat is low fat. I know 80 to 10, we have the, the 10% there, but like, what does that look like practically? Does that mean teens or below of a fat percentage? You touched on a lot. Can I try to touch back on some of it? And let me see if I can be quick. I'll be quick on some of these. So there's people who say that eating meat made us smarter, although there's no scientific evidence for this of any type. In fact, the the anthropologists who wrote about the concept of us becoming smarter all agreed 
that the way that this likely happened was that we changed what we ate from very low calorie dense food like leaves to a food that supplied more calories like fruit or something else. But they don't know for sure what. But let's understand that fruit contains from four to 10 times as many calories per bite as leaves do. And that's a big jump in calorie availability. And what they're saying is that humans were barely making it on just eating leaves. And when they went to a a more dense calorie source, they could reach a fuller potential in their ability to develop. So they had the genetic potential to develop. They just weren't getting enough calories except for survival. And, And once they were getting enough calories, they could then fulfill what they were destined to become in the first place. And we have to look at this because there's other people saying the exact same thing about cooked food and cooking, that cooking is what made us get so smart and cooking is what made us humans. And and I'm looking and I'm going, I, I know a lot of people who are living on meat and I don't see them getting smarter or having smarter kids and or us getting smarter generation after generation. You know, this stuff isn't happening particularly. It's a pretty fascinating world that we could say something just off the top. Oh, cooking makes us smarter. Well, well, let's cook more. According to the science, I mean, Dr. Mayard in 1919 said that cooking is probably the biggest health destroyer there could possibly be. Dr. Pottinger in 1929 came out with completely different studies and the exact same results saying the biggest health destroyer there could possibly be is cooking our food. This is stuff that's a hundred years old and has never been countermanded since then. All we've come up with is, oh yeah. And in the fifties, we found out that cooking fats is harmful to our health. And in the sixties, we found out that cooking proteins was harmful to our health. And in 2000, we found out that we create acrylamides when we heat carbon carbohydrates and that it's carcinogenic and on and on through this list. And we're going, oh yeah, and this is somehow good for us. Actually, no, cooked food is a highly addictive, toxic, concentrated. I mean, you mentioned whole foods at the beginning of this conversation. and, And I seriously question whether there can be a combination of whole foods and cooked foods, because I don't think that by the time you finish cooking a food that it could possibly be considered whole anymore. And so if you buy into whole foods, then you by default have to buy into raw foods. I spoke with T. Colin Campbell. He's a good friend. And when he wrote his book called Whole, you know, I asked, I called him up and said, hey, hey, T, like, do you consider cooked foods whole foods? And he said, And he said, it it reminded me of Clinton. He said, it depends how you define whole. (laughs) So there's a lot of ways to look at the world. I, I read a keto guy explaining how he ran a marathon. 
And what he did was like, he's a leader in the keto movement. He goes, look, you can be keto and you can still do ultra events. And I ran a marathon on keto. And what I did was I ate my keto diet right up until the week before the marathon. And then for a week, all I ate was carbs. (laughs) And then I went back after the marathon and I went right back on my keto diet. And that's how you run a marathon on the keto diet. I'm going... No, you ran the marathon on carbs. (laughs) But, I mean, human beings are funny. We can rationalize anything. We can say anything. We're seeing it so, so profoundly in the political situation currently. But there's a kind of yoga that's done in a really hot room. And some people question whether or not it really is yoga. I'm not going to get into that, but I think... That just because we call something something doesn't make it that. I mean, if I say full contact, last man standing, cage yoga, does that count as yoga? You know, I mean, just because it's got yoga in the name. If I call something health food, we have to wonder what is all the other food. We think of junk food and, and junkies. Those two things go together, but oh no, we don't inject junk, do we? We ingest our junk. And and we just kind of look and go, oh yeah, we can eat some junk now and again. And 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 every time I every time I have stuff that I don't want to think about, well, I just stuff myself down, I stuff my emotions down with food and I I numb myself with comfort food. You know, I mean, maybe when I was in college, I wanted to experiment a little bit with lowering my awareness levels now and again on a Friday night. But, but you know, as an adult, especially as a responsible adult, I want to become as aware as possible. Why would I want to numb myself with food? I want to learn to not only have emotions, but to feel my emotions and to revel in them and be a fully functional human being who operates at a, at a level where a, I don't get sick. People say, how are you so productive? Well, I'm never sick. And how are you so productive? Well, my need for sleep went down by 25% when I stopped eating cooked food. I had a friend when I was going through medical school. I had a guy that was a mentor to me lend me his Cadillac car because he was going away for two months and he needed somebody to look after it. And at the time, I had a very, very old car. I mean, it was really the only way you could describe it is a beater. And, and all of a sudden I'm driving this Cadillac for two months. And, and during that entire two months, I never once missed my beater. I never craved it. Anybody who's switched to a better boyfriend or a better girlfriend, you stop craving the old girlfriend or boyfriend when you switch to a better model. And, and when I found 801010 and the health, my wife is a really smart lady. And, and one day when we were still dating, she came up to me and she said, you can date anybody you want. You can date as many people as you want. I go, really? She goes, I don't, I don't really care. I'm not putting any restrictions on you. You can go out with anybody. You, you can go out with everybody. She goes, anybody that catches your interest, you, you can go out with. I go, wow. I was almost beyond words. I knew I should be listening and not talking. 
And, and then she said, but there will be consequences. And I should have just kept my mouth shut. But I said, what might they be? And she said, well, we'll stop going out if you go out with anybody else. And I really needed that ultimatum. That was great. I realized there were some rules to this game. And I love having some rules. Can you imagine playing sports with no rules? I mean, it, you got to have some rules. The rules give freedom. They don't take it away. They provide a structure. And we're set up to eat fruits and vegetables. It's easy. Anatomically, physiologically, nutritionally, health-wise, environmentally. I don't care what angle you want to go at it. In fact, I made a chart one time of 50 different medical sciences, every single one of them endorsing fruits and vegetables. It was pretty crazy. And I couldn't find any that were endorsing a high-fat diet or a high-meat diet. Yes, you can live on it. And yes, if you eat a super high fat diet and practically no carbs at all, you will not demonstrate diabetes symptoms because you're consuming so little blood, so little fructose, so little glucose, so little carbohydrate in total that your body can barely generate any glucose. But everybody has blood sugar. You got to have blood sugar or you're dead. My blood sugar goes into my bloodstream from my digestive tract and goes out to where it's needed unimpeded because I'm eating a low-fat diet. So there's two ways not to have diabetes. One is to not cause it. The other is to cause it on a high-fat diet, but then eat no glucose, no carbohydrates at all. But if you eat any, you'll right away spike your blood sugar and demonstrate diabetes. Whether it's temporary or long-lasting doesn't really matter. Okay, Robbie and Cyrus are unique compared to the rest of us because they have pancreases that are damaged long before they could do anything about it. This is what we call a type 1 diabetic, and their bodies don't produce, don't manufacture, don't manufacture insulin. So they're insulin-dependent. But what we taught them how to do was to lower their use of insulin by more than 20 times so that they could increase their consumption of carbohydrates by more than 20 times. It's called insulin sensitivity, where a type 1 diabetic on a standard Western diet might have an insulin sensitivity of just three or four. My insulin sensitivity is over 100. A healthy person is over 100. And Robbie and Cyrus have managed to boost theirs dramatically through lifestyle modification. Yeah, a bit of exercise. Oh, exercise is good for us, I hear. So it's okay that they do some exercise and change their diet to a low-fat diet. That's all it takes. You still get to eat everything you want. You just have to control how much of what. I don't find any restriction. I just decided what consequences do I want to go after. And the consequences I want are health and happiness. So I said, I'm willing to eat fruits and vegetables to get health and happiness, to have perpetual weight management exactly where I want it, to be able to do as much fitness activity as is required or as much as I care for on any day, to be able to stay up all night with patients if that's needed, to have a mind that's clear and a body that I can rely upon. I'll trade that for eating fruits and vegetables. Oh, I like fruits and vegetables, sweet and juicy. Gosh, 
Mother's milk is sweet and juicy. We're trained to look for sweet and juicy. It's inborn into us. Every adult has a sweet tooth that they try to control. I don't control mine, man. I let it run rampant. I eat all the fruit I want. It's a gift. It's the present. It's the prize. There's no penalty in eating well. So this is something that you talk about in the book within that world of fruits and vegetables, because we've been talking about the benefits of fruit in particular, but within the fruit and vegetable world, you break down some of the potential problems with the way a lot of people approach vegetarianism slash veganism, and that is including grains including potentially harder to digest vegetables. And you also talk about the difference between like starches versus fruits, also like legumes. (laughs) So within the fruit and vegetable world, what are your thoughts on the fruits and the vegetables? And then I'm going to throw in grains into this category because I think a lot of people, they include that. They think that that's included in this. Sure. One of the first books I wrote was a book called Grain Damage. Grain Damage was the very first anti-grain book ever written. There's now dozens of them. At the time, you know, people didn't want to hear about it. They just dismissed it. But grain damage was obvious. And I look at 20 different reasons in the book why we are not designed to consume complex carbohydrates. And perhaps the most obvious one is the fact that they are addictive, incredibly addictive. And anybody who's addicted knows it's true because they never go a day without eating complex carbohydrates. It's always bread, rice, pasta, corn, potatoes. And when they try to change their diet, they always go back to bread, rice, pasta, corn, potatoes. It's just like grains have a grip on them. The opioid substances in grains are profoundly powerful and they call you back again and again. So I prefer to make my life decisions based on preferences rather than out of addictions. And so I learned, like everybody else, that giving up grains was not the easiest thing to do. And instead, what I did was I moved towards eating more fruit. I'm not a fan of anything that has to be cooked in order to be consumed. But I also know the science. And the science says that up until the invention of the internal combustion engine, we couldn't get much grains because unless you have a a whole lot of slaves, there's no way to tend the fields. You can't grow fields of wheat or any other grain in large mass without a tractor. And the science makes it really clear that they're called complex carbohydrates for a reason. They're too complex to digest. Hence, when you put complex carbohydrates into your mouth, and you can breathe this in any dictionary, it's flavorless. Starch is a flavorless substance, which is why we always put salt and sugar and fat and whatever we can flavors onto our starch because no nobody's just eating straight cornstarch. As far as foods that must be cooked in order to be consumed, whether that be legumes, uh, mature legumes, or whether that be grains, or that be the tubers that are also starchy, I can't really recommend any of those for the primary reason that I am convinced that Linus Pauling was correct, that vitamin C is a hugely important nutrient, that we're supposed to get 20 times as much as we do, and there's none in any starchy food. 
possibly potatoes raw. But by the time we cook it, not even potatoes. So to make my primary calorie source, a food that contains no vitamin C goes against Nobel Prize winning science. But there's also the science of what's called starch digesting enzymes. We manufacture in our mouth something that's called salivary amylase or ptyalin, depending on when you went to school. And salivary amylase, according to the people who promote complex carbs, they say, look, we can prove that we're complex carb eaters because we have three times as much starch splitting enzymes in our amylase as do the gorillas. Well, the gorillas don't eat any starch. They're not made to. And on a scale of one to 100, they produce one in terms of starch splitting enzymes, but we only produce three on a scale of one to 100. So the creatures that can actually take a mouthful of starch and digest it are much, much, much higher on that scale. You take a mouthful of cornstarch or a spoonful and see how you do, Melanie. And it's going to be a long time before you can whistle. Okay. I'll report back. (laughs) You don't have the digestive enzymes to break down starch. We don't have them. In fact, most of the starches are of a type called oligosaccharides. It's a medium chain starch. And we have zero starch splitting enzymes for the oligosaccharides. So when we eat beans or unripe fruit, uh, especially like an an unripe banana or something, but beans and, and many other things, we notoriously get a whole bunch of wind because we do not have the digestive enzymes to break it down. We rely on bacteria. They're anaerobic bacteria. They generate a whole bunch of wind and they ferment the starch instead. So you become an alcohol factory within your own gut. To that point, if people do experience digestive distress while following the 80-10-10 foods, so fruits, leafy greens, do you think everybody's digestive system will eventually, you know, work its way out of that? Or are some people just destined for whatever reason to not, you know, to struggle to digest these things? I haven't met the lion yet that, you know, is set up to eat salad. Or the, or the antelope that's set up to chase down squirrels and, and consume them. Human beings, are we're, our anatomy and physiology supports the consumption of fruits and vegetables. But our biome or our microbiome, the microbes that live in our gut, we have thousands of cities made up of millions of bacteria each that are set up to help us digest our food. And the foods that we eat are represented in our gut by by bacteria colonies that expand in number. And the foods that we don't eat, well, we those bacterial colonies get smaller and smaller. So A, it's possible to make a dietary switch and have some big challenges at first, maybe for a week or so, five days or so. You've got to remember the life cycle is 20 minutes long. So the reproductive, you know, to go from one bacteria to a million takes about 28 cycles, which is eight hours. And to go from a million to a million million is another eight hours. So you can get you can switch over your bacteria pretty quickly. The problem most people have from my experience has been that they 
We're so trained to eat hugely complicated meals, just hugely complicated meals. And because human beings, all of us are suckers for stimulation. We love stimulants. And it's why Aldous Huxley wrote saying, you know, like stimulants are so great. And Sigmund Freud wrote that, that everybody should take cocaine because it makes you more of a person more of a real person because of the, sh- the sheer stimulating effect and stimulants of all kinds include the stimulation of variety. So a person can push back from a meal at a restaurant and say, man, I'm so full. I couldn't eat another bite. And then the waitress comes out with the dessert tray and we finish this. I couldn't eat another bite of this, but I've got room for that. (laughs) So we've kind of trained ourselves to think in terms of incredibly complex meals, whereas all the other creatures on the planet Everybody eats one food at a time when they're hungry until they're full or until they feel unsafe in that environment or the food runs out or something. But as long as there's food available, they'll eat one food at a time when they're hungry till they're full. Now, this concept, basically, when I first realized this concept, I put my feet out in front of me, my arms straight out in front of me, like I was about to be in a car crash and I was bracing. And I'm going, no, I don't want to go there. Because I was just as used to variety as anybody else. But then I realized that, A, a really simple meal, say a meal of grapes, you know, or a meal of bananas or whatever, a meal of watermelon, didn't matter, that a really simple meal was just as satisfying as any other meal, just as filling, except I felt better. And I started playing with it. And it really wasn't so bad. And I got to food that I really liked. I really like persimmon. I really like persimmon. It's persimmon season now. Really like persimmon. I'm having meals of persimmon every single day. I'll have a lunch of as many persimmon as I want. But by Christmas, there won't be any more persimmon. But there's going to be pomegranate. And then the pomegranate stops and the berries come. And then the berries stop and the lychee come. And then the lychee stop, but the peaches come and the apricots come and all the springtime fruits start coming into summer and, and then the full blown summer of everything. And then it starts turning into autumn and there's grapes and there's figs. And we find out that nature actually figured this all out for us. There's a lovely pattern set up whereby we can eat simplicity at every single meal while eating variety throughout the course of the year. It's a beautiful thing. I have a question for you. So the evolution of my dietary choices that I've gone through, the diet that I feel like I was happiest at and I am trying to work my way back to was I was eating meat, but I was eating very lean meat, barely any fat and really, really, really high fruit was basically the diet, like pounds and pounds of fruit. When I was doing that diet though, I could have days where I would not eat any meat and I would just eat fruit. And I would always notice the same things. Like the next day I would feel like so light. (laughs) My eyes would be like really, really white. And you talk about this in the book, how food doesn't cleanse us. Like, and you know, the food doesn't heal us, the body heals and the body cleanses, which I thought was really, really interesting concept. So I'm not saying the food was doing that, but that was the way I felt as I would feel like cleansed. But every time I would do that, 
because you were just talking about satiety and feeling satisfied. I inevitably would, I can never do that more than one day in a row. I would be craving animal protein again. And I don't know if that's because like, do you think I would just need to stick it out longer? No, no. I don't think it's a matter of persistence or willpower. If what you're doing isn't working, you get pretty clear messages that it's not working, but you then have to know what to do about it. I read a rather, it was a very insightful report one time about why different diets work. And and basically what it said is different diets work because they cut out certain macronutrients, what I call the caloronutrients. They cut out certain, like if you cut out protein entirely, or if you cut out fat entirely, or you cut out carbs entirely, you'll lose weight because you've cut out a calorie source. You've cut out a chunk of your calories for the day. And if you're normally eating 1500 calories a day, and then you stop eating meat and you drop 500 calories from your day, I'm not at all surprised that within a day or two, you start feeling pretty darn hungry because you didn't replace it with something else. You still have to get we didn't like perform magic here. I'm I'm a fairly athletic guy, although I spend most of my day sitting at a computer consulting with clients or writing. But I still stay fit and find time for that. And I eat between three thousand, thirty five hundred calories a day. And if I just cut out a big chunk of those calories, I'm gonna get very hungry very quick. The cool thing is that the hungrier you get, the less discriminating you become. And so you might be committed to your dietary approach, but if you're not, if it's not working because you're not eating enough, you're going to crave and you're going to cave and you're going to fall off whatever program that was. And typically the way you fall off is to bread, rice, pasta, corn, potatoes. But if your diet is fruits and meat, and then you cut out the meat, you're going to go back to it because you didn't say, oh, I cut out 500 calories of meat. Let me add in 500 calories of fruit or fruit and veg or whatever the choices might be. Yeah, that's really interesting. That idea actually never occurred to me. I don't know when I would do that if I compensated calorie wise. I would never be hungrier during the fast because this was paired with intermittent fasting, but I would just have this natural like craving for meat the next day. This is so interesting. We also have to understand that meat is a powerful stimulant. The last thing that happens to an animal before it dies is it's being tortured for several hours or days. The adrenaline in meat is, the adrenaline level in meat is off the charts. And when you consume that adrenaline, you get the same rush. You get, you want to roar just like the animals do before they go into the slaughterhouse. So, I mean, I don't like to get graphic about that stuff, but the reality is that the stimulating effect of meat is not only incredibly powerful, they get the same adrenaline as humans. Adrenaline is adrenaline. So, I mean, you consume it and you get that adrenaline. Uh, And you kind of get hooked on the rush it's a stimulant and we love stimulants. And it was a big deal to me to get free 
in my food. I'm not saying it was easy, but I also didn't do it all at once. It took me years and years and years of failure, a very frustrating, long circuitous route that really I would say, as I told you at the beginning, took me through almost 17 years of dietary exploration before I started eating fruit for breakfast, fruit for lunch, and all the fruit I want before my dinner vegetables, and be absolutely thrilled with that food to the point where I can sustain my athletic endeavors. I'm still setting records in powerlifting. I'm still in, like getting by on about 25% less sleep than the average person. 25% less sleep than what I needed when I was eating cooked food. I'm still having lots of fun playing with my 15-year-old daughter. And she says, oh, daddy, you're young. You'll carry me up the stairs forever. You know, And I go, okay, I hope so. But you know, it's, it's to me, like I said, what, what my wife said was so profound. It's about the consequences. What outcome do you want to have happen? If you want to have an athlete's looking body, well, you've got to do what an athlete does. If you want to have a healthy, fit body, you have to do what healthy, fit people do. If you live in accordance with the laws of nature, nature will create healthy humans just like it creates healthy of every other species when they live in accordance with the guidelines presented to them. But there's a lot of temptation out there. You know, there's probably people in your home area that are selling heroin, but you're not tempted because that's not one of the outcomes you want to pursue. It's not some of the consequences you want to pursue. I'm a big believer in having goals and going after them because it helps me focus on my desired outcome. I'm so glad you touched on the the role of the stress in the animals. And for listeners, especially if you are consuming animal products, I've had Terry Cochran on the show. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but she talks about the role that stress plays in the animals and how it creates amyloid proteins that we can't break down. And it's really, really fascinating. I also had Anya Fernald on and I'll put a link to that. She talked about the stress practices as well. So I always make sure to really vet my farmers and suppliers and make sure that it's all, you know, humane. I'm not even going to get into that. What I'd like to touch on is I'm sitting in medical school. I, my training is as chiropractic physician and, and I'm sitting going through my last year of school and my physiology teacher was a lady named Dr. Pettit. And Dr. Pettit is up there lecturing, just doing her thing. And, and there's 118 of us in class, just kind of some paying attention, some not so much and doing what you do going through school. And, and she said, her name, Barbara Pettit, she said, when you heat protein and there's protein in everything except like a bag of sugar or a bottle of oil, right? If it's, if there's, doesn't matter. Every kind of plant has protein. She said, when you heat a protein, the proteins become denatured in a very specific way. And then she went on to describe the physiology of the kind of changes that happen when you heat a protein. And what happens is the bonds that hold the protein, hold the amino acids together, which eventually become dipeptides and polypeptides and on through those things, proteoles, all the way to the source of protein. When you, when you heat proteins, those bonds come apart and then they cross link and reattach to each other once it cools down to enough so you could eat the food. Okay, so these are called cross-linked proteins. And cross-linked proteins only have one very 
special quality. They are enzyme resistant. And that was the end of her presentation. She went on to the next topic. And, and after class, because I was prime at that point, after class, I went out to Mrs. Pettit and I said, did you say in class that when you heat proteins, they form enzyme resistant cross-linked bonds for which we have no digestive enzymes making the proteins inaccessible to human beings? And she said, yes. And I said, do you still eat cooked proteins? And she said, well, yeah, of course, everybody does, but they don't access the protein. Making the question, where do you get your protein? Kind of silly, because if you're eating cooked protein as your source, if you're eating cooked meat as your source, then you're not getting the protein anyway. We don't really need much protein. It's been proven time and time again. We don't need much protein because adults aren't growing and protein is used for growth. Kids don't need much protein and they're growing like crazy. The biggest growth spurt happens between the ages of zero and one when a baby will just about double its weight in a year's time. And that happens on mother's milk, which is only 6% protein by calorie. Here we are as adults eating 10%, but most of it's cooked. We're proving that we don't need protein because we're not growing. And Barbara Pettit says that we can't access it, as does all science. Once you cross-link a protein, it becomes enzyme-resistant bonds. I like to think of it as a British thing, bonds, enzyme-resistant bonds. And, and just have a good time with it, but understanding that while a person is pouring olive oil onto their salad, but they're interested in what you do, and they're asking you, where do you get your protein? And I go, well, I don't get it from olive oil because there's no protein in olive oil. That's why it's called extra virgin because obviously there's no extra virgins around. The only thing in there is oil. It's liquid fat. And so we take a salad that's 100 calories, if that. And then we put 500 calories of oil on the top of it because nobody uses a spoon to put a spoonful on. They just pour. And all of a sudden you got four or 500 calories of oil and they're asking you, where do you get your protein? I'm going, you just got none. You've got a salad that's 80% fat and no protein at all. Maybe one gram of protein in the salad, you know, and it's, and it's like, whoa, we're not really making a whole lot of sense here. People are patting themselves on the back for doing this, that, or the other, but they actually haven't done it in the same way that people say, I'm going to write a book, but they never do. And I'm not knocking people. I am one. We all have our frailties. We all have our, our cool little quirks. But when it came to food and nutrition, I did my homework again and again and again and again. And every single time, it, it didn't matter where I looked, whether I looked at urology or oncology or cardiology or, you know, it just didn't seem to matter what science, what branch of medicine. It just kept coming back. Fruits and vegetables, whole, fresh, ripe, raw, organic plants. Don't put pesticides on your food. Don't put insecticides on your food. Don't put fungicides, rodenticides. In fact, even fries on the side are going to just take you down a path that you don't want to go down. If it ends in CIDE, this is not good for you. And nobody's promoting, oh, yeah, yeah, pesticides. That'll solve your child's ADD. 
we're not saying that. We're saying, oh, we got to get our kids to eat better. I've had more people say, I wish I could get my kids to eat better. And I go, well, have you started eating better? You're the model they're going to follow. I have a good time with eating fruits and vegetables. I really like them. I think if other people would actually try eating fruits and vegetables, that they'd really like them too. But most people dismiss it before they ever try because they're addicted to what they're eating and aren't really ready to face that. If you're not addicted, go ahead and show me. Try fruits and vegetables for a week. Eat enough fruits and vegetables to satisfy yourself in between meals so that you can take full advantage of what Melanie referred to as intermittent fasting. I just call it being satiated at every meal. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful 
for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a Juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee 
even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. If a listener is currently following an intermittent fasting protocol, especially because a lot of my listeners follow like a one meal a day protocol. So they're eating, you know, a lot in a small window, oftentimes dinner, are they able to get enough calories in that window on the 80-10-10 approach or does it require a longer eating window? Well, my mother always told me to eat slower. I always told her to eat faster. I don't know how fast we're supposed to eat. Slow eating has become all the rage. Carnivores eat really fast. Grass eaters eat pretty slow. I don't know how fast we're supposed to eat. I, I tend to eat relatively quickly if I'm in, if I'm with a bunch of other people and we're all eating the same food I tend to eat mine faster than they do but I don't know what that means how fast are we supposed to eat I know that in the course of my day I take about 10 minutes to eat my breakfast it goes down pretty quickly fruit is instantaneous food and it's quick to eat and I rarely spend 10 or 15 minutes eating lunch lunch goes down pretty quickly I mean it doesn't take long to eat a few bananas and move on Dinner takes a little longer because salad takes some time. And maybe, maybe, maybe out of my entire day, I eat for 45 minutes or an hour. There's no way I can stretch it to be an hour of eating in the course of my entire day. And whether you want to put that all into one meal or you want to put that into three, I'm still spending 96% of my day not eating, which makes me a 96% breatharian, I guess. But I'm not aspiring to become a breatharian or tell people, hey, I'm 96% breatharian. No, that's not the point. I just eat meals that satisfy me. And in between meals, I'm not thinking about food. So I can pay attention to the stuff that I 
find way more interesting than food. And I like food, but there's way more interesting things. There's people, there's projects, there's needs, there's all sorts of problems to be solved. There's so many interests. There's books to be read. There's things to do, people to meet, all kinds of fitness challenges, all sorts of fun to be had. There's puzzles. I mean, there's so much way cool stuff in the world. And I don't want my head clogged up by what I just ate. I don't want to have to sleep it off. I don't want to get cloudy because I ate this, that, or the next. I just eat my food. Everything works like it's supposed to. I mean, if I needed to meet all my calorie needs in an hour every day, I most easily could do so. Easily. How long is it? I don't know. But you see, I don't know how long it takes you to eat a banana. It, it doesn't take me a minute to eat a banana. Not that, not a nice ripe banana. It doesn't take a minute. You know, so if I need to eat 15 of them, it's only 15 minutes. I guess it might be, and you talk about this at length in your book, it might be more volume. There's a thing called a happy meal and I'm not picking on it. But I look at that puny little thing and I go, oh, man, that's so sad that you have to eat such a small meal and call it happy. If I was going to eat that meal, I'd want to eat three of them, as do most people. And then they get fat. There's only one diet in the history of mankind that has ever been shown to have lasting results as far as losing weight. And that is what's called LCD. And the LCD approach is low caloric density, however it's been promoted in a whole bunch of different ways. LCD is the only thing you can do that promotes lasting results in terms of weight loss and the only thing you can do that promotes lasting results in terms of health. So for instance, if we started with leaves and call that a caloric density of one, we can look at fruit and the range in fruit runs about from four to 10 times as much caloric density. If we look at starches, we go from, we go from about 20 to 30. If we look at meat, we're up about 60 to 100 times the caloric density of leaves. Caloric density also relates to digestive effort. So we're not necessarily an advantage to eat dense food because it's beyond our digestive capacity. But as you lower caloric density, you have to raise volume. So people look at me and go, you're going to eat all that? Well, yes, but I've had practice. And admittedly, it takes some practice to switch from standard diet to vegetarian because the volume goes up. From vegetarian to vegan, the volume goes up. From vegan to raw vegan, the volume goes up again, because we switch to whole foods. But last I heard, whole foods was sort of the cornerstone of healthy eating. It's funny, when the whole COVID situation first happened and people were you know, freaking out and stocking up at the grocery store, like the amount of, especially when I'm in my, my fruit phases, the amount of whole food fruits, cucumbers, things like that I buy, I eat daily is insane. And I would go shopping and it looked like I was panic buying like everybody else. But I was like, no, this is just how much. This is normal. I know. I can't imagine if people who are actually fruititarian, like, you know, how much they're buying <laughs> during that whole situation. To me, it doesn't seem abnormal, but you know, I, I've had 40 years to grow into it. So the amount of food that I buy and the amount of food that I bring home, I don't spend more on food. I've done all that math. I don't spend more on food, but I spend a whole lot less on medical bills. I spend a whole lot less on a wide variety of entertainments that 
aren't of interest to me, you know, like alcohol. But I mean, that's a personal choice, right? I found it fascinating that in the last couple of years, every single study on alcohol has been the opposite of what they've been telling us for the last 20 years, which is a little alcohol is good for us, but a lot is bad. Now they're coming out and saying, no, there's no known amount of alcohol that can be consumed that could ever be considered good for you. It's all bad for you, <laughs> but you could eat a little and get away with it, but there's no amount that's good for you. And I'm glad to hear that, but we needed science to tell us this, that a, that a substance that kills every cell with which it comes into contact was somehow supposed to be good for us? Like, come on. So this fractured view of nutrition has been brought to us by scientists for the last 60 years, and they're just trying to fool us. Hence, when they show us milk and refined cereal breakfast with some strawberries thrown in, they go part of this nutritious breakfast because the strawberries were nutritious, but the grains weren't. They were just part of this nutritious breakfast. And they've been lying to us for ages. They told us when you eat oats that the fiber in oats lowers your blood pressure. And really what happens is when you eat meat or other foods that have no fiber, blood pressure goes up. But if you eat plants, blood pressure goes down. It wasn't magic of oats, but over and over, the problem is we've been lied to so much that sometimes people just don't know what to believe. And so I went all the way back. I've been full circle in nutrition many times. As I said, I went through the orthomolecular stuff of using supplements back in school days and finding out that supplements couldn't possibly be as nutritious as whole food. In fact, supplements are more isolated ingredients than, I mean, what you find in a chemistry lab. They're really pure. And I'm going, no, no, no. What happened to whole foods? So I just eventually started doing nutrition by the food rather than nutrition by the nutrient because I can't jumble 500,000 nutrients. No nutritionist can. Nature did all this for us. People think probably a lot that I might be about all the supplements, but honestly, I would rather never take a supplement ever again. I think we should ideally get it all from foods like we've been talking about. Well, you don't. You don't get it all from food. You certainly don't get it all from foods. Yeah, that's the second part is that we can't. Because, because we get our vitamin D from the sun, not from food. And we get our vitamin B12 from bacteria that live inside our nasal mucosa, not from food. And there are other nutrients as well that we don't get from food, but we manufacture within our own bodies, either completely on their own or by converting one thing into something else. And so you'll see sometimes the five nutrients that vegans don't get. Well, we don't get vitamin D because that comes from the sun, you know, and, and B12, we don't get that because that comes from bacteria that live in our gut and in our nasal mucosa. Oh, and also in all of our other orifices, but we don't have to go there on this show. And, and DHA, and, and there's nutrients that the body manufactures or converts from other substances. And we don't get those from our food, but we're not supposed to. Neither does anybody else. 
It's not that it's a deficiency of a vegan diet. It's just the reality that not all of nutrition comes from food. In fact, in the world of nutrition, there's substances known as anti-nutrients. So, for instance, if you're walking behind a bus in the city, the smell of those bus fumes will blow the vitamin C out of your body. I mean, it just burns through vitamin C like nobody's business. Just like smoking a cigarette blows through like massive quantities of vitamin C or any exposure to cigarette smoke. But if you just happen to find yourself in a city and you're breathing some construction dust and you're hearing some sirens and and some construction noise maybe or horns blowing and just the sounds of traffic and these are all stressful sounds to our body. This has been proven through some work in a book called Biophilia that we respond adversely. We respond with stress and we blow through our B vitamins. Literally just living in a city increases your need for B vitamins compared to living in the country. And so when we look at getting nutrients or losing nutrients or nutrition, it's not all about food, not by any means. And we lose the plot if we start thinking that it's all about food. There's way more to health and there's way more to nutrition than just our food. But none of it's going to be right if the food isn't right. None of it's going to be right if the sleep isn't right or the exercise isn't sufficient or if it's over sufficient and on and on. So the saying everything in moderation, I disagree with. I would say all the things that are self-destructive influences, we should avoid completely. And the self-constructive influences, we should take in moderation. Yeah, that was one thing I really loved about the book was that's how you started it was like, you know, 80 to 10 is not just a diet. <laughs> you know, it's it's a whole lifestyle and there's so many factors involved and it's such a such a huge comprehensive picture. So I don't ever want to lose track of the fact that health is a, a pretty darn complicated subject and that health is about way more than just food. I want people to be relaxed and happy about the way they eat, you know, but you got to cover your bases. There's no, there's no substitute for healthy living. And if you're not living healthily, don't be surprised if health doesn't happen. The food itself is not a one-stop shop solution. I've talked about this before on other shows, but I think so many times people will change their diet and it'll address something like a deficiency or it'll get rid of something inflammatory they were eating. And so then they think magically that this new diet is the be all end all, even when it is no longer working for them because they mistook that initial change. They thought that this new diet they were trying was like the answer when really it was affecting something else. That's why I'm just all about, you know, constantly being open to experimenting and finding the foods that do work for you. I hope you'll get to that point where you you, of all people, get the chance to give 80 to 10 a, a thorough experiment. 
knowing full well that it's an experiment. And I, I encourage you also for your listeners, I, I can make an open promise that if you give raw food a, an open experiment, read 80-10-10, follow the program, just like it's in the book. It's really straightforward. It's basically fruit for breakfast, fruit for lunch, and all the fruit you want before your dinner salad. If you have any kind of cravings, you probably didn't eat enough fruit. If you crave sweets at the end of the meal, if you're looking around for something heavy at the end of the meal, if, you, if complex carbohydrates look like anything other than the paste that they really are. You know, you, your wallpaper paste is just starch and water, right? Pastry is just starch and water and sugar and eggs. I mean, pasta is just starch and water. They don't hide the fact that it's paste. It's just, even in the name, it's paste. So I can make the promise that if you give 80s and 10 a fair chance. Give fruits and vegetables a fair chance. Actually eat raw for a couple of months or whatever you consider is a fair chance. If you decide that it's not like the best thing ever, then cooked food will still be available. You can always go back. 100% plan to. Actually, technically last night what I ate was all raw, but included raw meat because I'm kind of crazy like that. What's interesting though is like when I was doing my diet where I was high lean protein, high fruit. I never felt like I needed to change anything. And I never felt like I was like, Oh, I could just exist like this forever. And the only reason I changed was because one of the doctors I was seeing thought I had candida and said, well, you need to cut out the fruit, which we could, that's a whole tangent. And you talk about that in the book. And after that, I was like, once I get fruit back in my life again, I'm never leaving it again because I don't think I gained anything from cutting it out for sure. I feel like everything actually got worse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I 100% plan to to try this experiment full force. I look forward to hearing about it. And if I can support you in any way, feel free to ask questions. But I think you'll do it just fine. It's not a complicated thing, although some people make it more complicated. And, and certainly, as I say, I know how to make 100 or 200. I don't even know how many rather complex gourmet raw foods that are still 80, 10, 10. I mean, I had burgers tonight for dinner. I'll be the first to admit it, but it was just vegetables turned into a tasty burger. And cause I like that presentation and I love, you know, I have good memories of eating a burger, so I can still enjoy that with my salad, with my fruit before dinner. And then I walk away from the dinner meal and I go, wow, I'm so satiated. I don't want anything again for a long, long time. And probably not until about noontime tomorrow will I even think about eating food. And I won't say that I follow one meal a day or two meals a day or three or even four. It very much varies with my activity levels. And when I'm super, super training hard, I'll be eating three or four meals a day. And when I'm when I'm spending a lot of time behind the computer and relatively inactive, two meals a day is more than fine. So I don't try to enforce that any more than I try to say, okay, every Monday I don't eat anything or, you know, any kind of regimen like that. I want to get way more in touch with my body than that. But getting in touch with your body is not the same as cravings and giving into cravings. People say, oh yes, I was listening to my body and my body said chocolate and, and cupcake and coffee, you know? I mean, no, that's addiction talking. That wasn't listening to your body. I could not agree more. And it goes back to something you talked about and something, something that our mutual friend, Glenn Livingston talks about a lot. Love him. Is this whole idea. I know he's so great. I love him. It's the whole idea of what you already talked about, which is 
having your rules and within existing within that, the ultimate freedom, you know, not being slave to addiction and slave to not knowing what you want or knowing what is, you know, working in your life, but rather knowing what works, having those rules. And then within that, just, you know, complete freedom. And that's, that's what I think so many people can find, especially when they, they find the macronutrients that work for them. They find the diet that works for them. And so many people with the 80 10, 10 find that. So thank you. I think this is going to be a paradigm shift for a lot of my listeners. I'm really excited to hear, hear their thoughts and their feedback. Before we go, is there anything that you specifically wanted to touch on that we didn't touch on? I mean, there's so much content. So again, I'll just refer listeners to your book. Bless your heart. I would encourage people to eat more fruit. I would encourage people to eat more fruit, just a lot more fruit. It's almost hard because we don't have the framework of reference, and you touched on it earlier, the sheer volume. It's almost hard to think of making fruit a meal instead of having fruit with the meal, before the meal, in between the meals, whatever, actually make a meal of fruit. And what most people find out is that they're hungry an hour later or two hours later because they didn't eat enough fruit. I mean, it's truly a lot of fruit to get as many calories from fruit as you got from whatever you would normally eat for lunch is a lot of fruit. And it just takes some getting used to until that amount seems normal. The other thing is what people have told me, I can't say I've always been outspoken, but I guess maybe I have. I, I speak my mind. I know it's more important to be nice and kind than it is to be right. But I, I want to make friends while I still get a chance to make my points. But I know that people have always told me my whole life to go to health. At least that's what I heard. And so I'll encourage all your listeners also to go to health and have a lot of fun and eat a lot of fruit and let life be really, really good because being healthy is by far and away not the only thing, but it's so far out of whatever ahead of whatever is in second place that health has to be the primary objective. Nothing else happens if we don't have our health. It becomes our only concern when we don't have our health. And so I just encourage everybody to go to health. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. So the very last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast as the last question, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for this great interview. I'm grateful that my daughter is incredibly healthy and athletic and happy as could be. I'm I'm grateful that I met the woman of my dreams and married her. I'm grateful that, you know what I'm really grateful for? I'm grateful that I didn't get left in the dust and that the information that I am sharing, as you mentioned at the beginning, with, with professional athletes and high-level performers of almost every type and imaginable career choice that they're still seeking me out and still want to know because it's easy to, you know, just be old and in the way. And instead I'm, I feel vibrantly young and healthy. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, and I give gratefuls at every meal. I give gratefuls all throughout the day. I'm, I'm grateful to have a mind that works really well, a body that works really well. And I'm going to take so good care of it so that I can keep it as pristine as possible. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Graham. I, I'm just glowing. I'm so grateful for you and for your work and for this conversation. And I know you're, you have a lot of books and you said you're, you're releasing one on fasting. So maybe in the future, when that's out, we can bring you back for a fasting episode. That'd be really exciting. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I will talk to you again in the future. Thanks for having me on board, Melanie. It's truly a treat. I look forward to get the chance to meet you face to face. Likewise. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.